0: My name is Pedram Rajabifard, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. All right, let's start the show.
1: Hi everyone, today we are here to talk to Dr Nicola Davis who specializes in general practice and also gives medico-legal advice with MITS. Hi Nicola, thanks for joining Hi. us. Um, so let's start with, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your current roles and what they involve?
2: So my current roles involve general practice. So I work about a day and a half in general practice. And then my medico-legal advisor role is um, about three days a week, although that's fairly flexible and there's a a bit of after-hours stuff involved. Um, And that involves taking calls from practitioners who uh, want advice and also managing claims and medical board uh, complaints.
1: Um, How did you get into these roles?
2: So general practice, obviously, initially actually started off doing uh, OBS and gynae, but decided to head down the general practice um, route and did fellowship, so have been doing that for 30 years. And um, the medical legal advising role was about 11 years ago. I was approached to just put my toe in the water, really do some risk education and um, also take calls from doctors. Occasionally, And so then that's developed into having the role I have down here, which is I'm the chairman of the claims department here down in... Um...
1: Okay. Um, what was your main focus throughout your medical training? Like, did you always plan to go into medical legal or...?
2: I don't think so. Look, whenever anyone asks me that question, I actually say, look, I did do some medical ethics and law at Cambridge. So I did my undergraduate... Um, uh, studies at Cambridge and there you could do a year of other things. Um, so I've always been interested in the ethical um, and legal side of things. I'm not sure how useful that really has been in my um, work to be honest but um, it's sometimes good when people are actually wanting you to be a lawyer to, to say that. Um, so I've always had the interest but no I didn't really uh, think of doing it. General practice is a great variety. I often say that um, the thing that has taught me most in life has been being a GP. You learn an awful lot from patients, the way they do things, the way they handle things. So general practice is a great broad experience uh, for anything in life, but it can sometimes get a bit repetitive like any job. So it's great to be able to have um, that diversity of um, two roles.
1: Um, were there any specific qualifications or experiences that you needed to become a medico-legal advisor?
2: There is a requirement to actually pass some insurance exams because um, medical indemnity now is an, in Australia is an insurance product and so you have to be very careful to not breach uh, insurance laws. I guess the commonest way you could do that would be to give what's called personal advice to someone about what they should and shouldn't do about um, cover. So there's some uh, fortunately fairly structured um, basic insurance exams, which we have to take, which is an online module, and you have to stay up to date with that, um, which isn't too obvious to be honest, um, but it's a requirement that all medical legal advisors...
1: What would you say encompasses the most common medical legal inquiries that you receive from junior doctors? and how can we prevent the situations that lead to them in the first place?
2: Interesting question. Um, so one of the commonest scenarios is unfortunately when doctors are, are maybe impaired or, or having trouble coping with their workload. Um, so it's quite often they that will result in a complaint or um, an inter-colleague issue. And so we will about that. Um, it's always difficult to know because we often hear one side of the story but it's great also to be able to support um, junior doctors in that area and perhaps guide them as to other supports too. Um, another common one is about notes, about writing reports um, for coroners or for um, solicitors or appearing in court if you've been in emergency. that sometimes people are, are quite frightened of the legal system and I think it's Um, helpful to speak to someone who's much more familiar with it. Um, From a point of view of how they could be helped, I think probably the writing reports and contact with the coroner probably a little bit more undergraduate exposure and certainly exposure in the medical education units in hospitals which we try and um, facilitate. That would be good to kind of meet the coroner when you're a medical student to get an idea of what you do. The wellbeing and impairment is obviously much more complex. I think it's all about communication and open channels, which can be problematic, but i um, okay. can't expand <laughs> further.
1: Um, how much interaction do you actually get with lawyers here at MIPS?
2: So um, often things like medical board cases are actually best handled by a fellow practitioner because the medical board, for instance, will want to... Their have that medical bias too so it's easier to explain it but um, obviously claims and uh, lawsuits require a, a lawyer's response we have some panel lawyers who we um, know well and, and use and so on a uh, to answer your question I would on a daily basis speak with lawyers. Um part of my job is taking the 24-hour call line mm. and um, so often you'll have a call. That doesn't usually result in you calling a lawyer. Occasionally people will call and say, look, they've been told to go down to the police station, in which case we obviously um, need a lawyer. So um, we complement each other. I think it uh, MIPS we pride ourselves on running cases based on the medicine rather than on the commercial um, law, so sometimes we have to say to the lawyers, they may advise one way, and we'll say, well, actually, we know the medicine, right thing. so even though it might be commercial to just end this now, we're not going to do that, and and MIPS is never shy of doing that. I think then that also has the knock-on effect that you have the lawyers around town for the plaintiffs know that too.
1: Okay.
0: Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the TheMedCollab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show.
1: Um, so if there was a medical student or a junior doctor who was interested in going down a medico-legal pathway, how would you suggest they get involved or get their foot in the door?
2: Sure. Well, look, I think it is possible even at the junior level to get involved, probably more in um, doing presentations and uh, us using you guys as a resource because um, one of the things that happens is that medical legal advisors tend to be quite old. That's necessary in some ways because it's hard to advise fellow practitioners if you haven't got a lot of experience. But obviously advising young practitioners can be more problematic if you're older and and not in touch with what's going on. So I think uh, contacting an MDO and saying that you're willing to just do a little bit of work would be the way to start. It's unlikely that someone would be able to obtain a full-time job doing medical legal stuff to start with. So that obviously might be difficult, um, but the work can be quite flexible. We have um, junior doctors who do speaking uh, engagements for us and we give them a bit of training um, because obviously don't want to be a Um, I think it's important to obviously try and be available and be reliable if you want to do that sort of um, work. So I encourage people to contact us and realise that it's going to be a slowly evolving career rather than a bang, start yeah. straight in there.
1: That's very nice. Um, So could you please tell us a little bit about what your typical day involves?
2: So I mean obviously like lots of spheres of medicine it's hard to describe a typical day. Um, So there's probably two sorts of days here in the medical legal office. So it would start um, with, it might start with a phone call if I'm taking the 24-hour Line, but our doctors actually are usually quite good and not disturbing us at night so I'm actually on call today and I didn't have any calls in the night um, so it'll start about eight o'clock with maybe some calls from practitioners who've got into work and have discovered that they've got a complaint or that they've got um, a, a, a writ as we call it happening and they'll obviously be quite panicked about that and phone us up and we'll kind of calm them down That will then involve us liaising with um, the claim staff here to tell them what's happened because all these things we have to quantify as how much money might this cost MIPS because it's obviously very important that we're financially um, viable, which we um, obviously take very, very seriously. So we need to know what's out there and what our members are liable for. Then we would assist um the practitioners with writing letters so i like to think i can write a pretty good letter to them um but we would obviously always make sure that the practitioners write the letter first and then we'll help them um perhaps word it a little bit um uh more politically correct but obviously it's got to be their words we're not going to write Letters for them then um look it involves just really going through files that are existing cases looking at what's happening reading through the stories and working out um whether we're on the right track or whether there's constantly information coming in so we quite often get expert opinions from other doctors and um, it's important that we instruct the lawyers to ask the right questions of those experts because they might not know it because they don't know the medicine. And then have a look and and obviously constantly check as to uh, whether something is defendable or or not defendable. The other kind of day is um, going to a mediation or going to court. that usually starts a bit later because lawyers don't seem to get up as early as doctors. So they usually start about 10 o'clock. And um, so it'll involve coming to the office beforehand and then taking, everything's quite still paper-based actually in lawyer terms. And so basically going to court and um, listening to uh, the plaintiff's, defence and the defendant's defence and then constantly discussing with my colleagues about what we should do so the other thing like most of medicine is there is um, quite a lot of uh, collegiate support it's not unilateral decision making Um, so there's always people I can phone and say what do you reckon I think this what do you think which is nice.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about um, your day as GP as well?
2: Sure, so my day as a GP usually involves getting there um, maybe 15 to 30 minutes before um, patients start and going through results and correspondence and that sort of thing so that hopefully um, I'm up to speed by the time the patients start. Um, So that usually happens to be where I work at the moment about 9 o'clock. And so then the patient load is, at the moment we have 15-minute appointments, but sometimes um, we squeeze in an extra patient. That can be um, quite stressful to to try and see people in 15 minutes, I find, particularly if their expectation is that you're going to see quite a lot of um, problems of theirs um so obviously the work's incredibly varied you never know what's going to come through the door it can be I'm just here for an immunization which maybe sometimes isn't I'm just here for an immunization because if people are traveling you've got to check things so I think it's that um listening to what the patient initially says but being really aware that there may be a hidden agenda sure you've heard of that term I think hidden agendas in general practice are probably more than anywhere else Um, and so that's why having the communication skills and the patience in general practice to sort of get to know your patient and work out okay is this um, something more than it seems Hmm. so really really varied work.
1: Yeah Um, have you found that working as a medical legal advisor has influenced the way that um you practice in your gp J- as a gp yeah look
2: another good question i think i think it has i think certain things so we've actually reviewing a bit of our data here at mips because we've got obviously lots of data that probably no one knows uh, anything about and that's an area that we're looking into so for instance um what's the commonest reason that doctors um miss or delay diagnosis of breast lumps and we're reviewing about 300 cases we've got Um, of that which I think will be really interesting but it's going to take a little while to do Uh, and I guess look I'm now aware of what it is that commonly seems to go wrong and I think hopefully that makes me practice better medicine rather than excessively defensive medicine
1: so would you say being a GP is a good specialty to go into if you want to also do medical legal advice on the side I think that any
2: specialty has um, can go into medico-legal uh, advising. I mean, obviously, in, in general practice, you have that versatility to maybe able to understand the other specialists. Um, but as a psychiatrist, there's an enormous amount of medico-legal work. Um, and as we have here, we, we have some GPs, but we also have an anaesthetist. We have an ob, obstetrician. Um, And general physician so any specialty sort of if you get a few years behind you and I guess I think uh, of a kind of fairly calm sensible person then um, it's a good specialty.
1: What would you say is the most rewarding part of your job?
2: Um, Like any aspect of medicine I guess it's um, being able to help people and in this situation the people are our colleagues so I think that makes it extra specially rewarding because having done medicine for 30 years I know how stressful and and concerning it can be so to be able to um, help our colleagues is sort of even better than being able to help patients and uh, yeah look sometimes we have colleagues who maybe don't see the same Things the same way as us. So that can be a challenge to turn them around into helping them see another side, and that's very satisfying too. Yep.
1: Um, What part would you say you struggle with the most?
2: I think um two things that I spring to mind. One is the sad stories. So there are a lot of sad stories of patients out there, as we know, and um there are a lot of people I would like to give millions of dollars to but um, if our practitioners haven't done something wrong then sadly those patients can't have millions of dollars because that will have to come out of the healthcare budget and eventually um, because obviously if we pay out millions of dollars our fees go up and and people charge patients more so that's the way i think of it when i feel very um sad for people i realize that doctors have paid work very hard to pay their membership um the other thing that I find difficult is sometimes when doctors haven't done a good job. That's very rare. Um, usually, I can happily walk into mediations and court knowing that we're, our doctors have done a, a great job. But sometimes, you know, if we have um, uh, stuffed up, and we all stuff up from time to time. But I guess if people repeatedly seem to be in a pattern where they're maybe not being as conscientious as as their colleagues, then I find that quite difficult.
1: Okay. Um, So I understand you studied overseas for Mm. a little bit as well. Um, Do you mind telling us a little bit about that um, and whether um, you think working internationally is beneficial to the medical profession?
2: Sure. So I trained in the UK and so I worked there for um, six years and did my general practice training over there too. I think it's very insightful to have another health service um, experience I've also worked briefly in in Africa uh, and, and Asia uh, for, for a period of time but the UK system is obviously quite similar to Australia but different so um, that is interesting I think that any international experience is useful from a point of view of coming here to Australia and then fitting in Um, there were obvious things I was in North Queensland so there were obviously things like spider and snake bites and skin cancer that I had to come up to speed with and that's just a question of of constantly asking I think the most dangerous doctors are the ones who don't ask for help so um, constantly asking colleagues what do you think And, and you eventually learn these new things I think it is quite difficult coming to a new system and maybe Australia I see this in my MIPS work doesn't do enough to help people um, learn about the Medicare system, which is pretty complex, as I'm sure you probably know. So if you're kind of thrust amongst it, we find that that can be quite confusing for overseas practitioners.
0: Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We wanna make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog.
1: At what point in our careers do you think medical students or junior doctors should travel overseas to work? I think travel at any stage is advantageous.
2: So um, I think an extended period of travel for more than a couple of months is probably useful at some point. Um, and so had thought about the answer to that. But, look, traditionally, obviously, people go before they become specialists. Yeah. And I suppose that's practical because once people start to have um, families, it becomes more complex to move them. But uh, as often as people can, I think is good.
1: Yeah. Are there any particular countries that are better suited for Australian medical graduates than others? Um,
2: I think that, you know, all the different countries suit different um types of doctors i mean obviously somewhere like south africa people go to get amazing uh experience surgical general surgical experience that perhaps it's harder to get over here in australia so i think it really depends what it is you want to do if you were doing medico legal advising then um probably i would imagine going to the uk because the system so similar might be good but obviously the us would be fascinating too yeah. um although entirely different system
1: so I understand you do most of your general practice rurally. Um, could you tell us about the differences between sort of rural GP and GP in Melbourne?
2: Sure. So, look, I, I've been in Melbourne for 18 months. Prior to that, I was in a... it was It's Rama 3, or was Rama 3, so it was kind of rural, outer metropolitan. And um, the, there's a big difference in that you get a a fair bit more independence because there's not the people to refer to um, quite so easily. But look, there is a support network out there too. And in some ways, I think uh, it's easier to practise in rural because particularly if you've been there for a while, you have set of colleagues who you can easily phone and that networking is there whereas sometimes when i'm down here and i phone the hospital nobody knows who i am i don't know who they are um and it's a bit bit colder so look um i think Rural general practice sometimes scares people off a bit by making it sound more terrifying than it is. I certainly used to be terrified at, at uh, you know what I was going to have to deal with. But look, there is tremendous support and tremendous systems. And yes, look, obviously you, you can be left um, alone in a situation that can be a bit, bit scary, but there's always someone to phone. Yeah,
1: that's good. Um, so could you please talk to us? about your work-life balance or um, how you fit in family and everything like that?
2: Yeah, look, I think that's difficult, work-life balance. I wouldn't say that I have sorted that out. Um, I'm aware of it. I am very conscientious, like lots of practitioners, and so I don't like to do half a job. Um, So I also uh, feel immense empathy for the practitioners who are going through medico legal drama so one tries to be available um, out of airs and talk I think it's important to maybe set boundaries about when to talk so I sometimes have doctors who phone me on a Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon and they that's a good time for them to have a long chat about how they're feeling about the complaint or case and I'll happily talk to them if I can but if I can't I think I'm getting better at saying look actually this isn't a good time for me Um, and so I think the art of that that kind of balance is maybe to provide a good service when you can but to be completely honest and say sorry this isn't a good time for me rather than I think what I would have done in the past was have a go and, and maybe not done such a a good job of it Um, Look, in general practice, work-life balance, I think, is is easier. Mm -hmm. Obviously, looking after patients who are terminally ill um, or have um, really acute things going on in their life can be problematic with family, and I certainly have had my kids in the car outside someone's house while I go and do a home visit. Um, I'm plying them with sweets or, or something like that. So, look, I think... Probably again, the most important thing is to be honest with our patients about what we can do and what we can't do. And there are people like doctors who won't understand, but maybe we don't have to worry too much about them if they're really being unreasonable.
1: Yeah. Do you find that um, it's busier working as a rural GP um, compared to a metropolitan GP? No,
2: I don't think so at all. I think the the patients um, are there wherever you are. Perhaps. Um, saying I can't see a patient is harder in a rural area because there's less options available. Um, But I think it's important to know your limitations and obviously if something's urgent, then it has to be seen. But um, So particularly we did a a talk at a conference and asked a a bunch of doctors a list of 10 people who they would consider urgent and everyone was different. So, I think it's important to um, yeah, look, put, put the boundaries in place.
1: Yep. Um, are. What are your interests outside of medicine um, and how do you find time to fit them in?
2: Ah, so might be a bit thin on the interests outside medicine, but no, look, I, I do try and take some regular exercise. So, I uh, go to a boot camp, which I find I can really only do if I get up at 6am in the morning mm-hmm. so i usually try and do that three or four times a week and feel virtuous about that um but look otherwise um i've got two kids who've got pretty busy activities so run around a bit there catch up with friends that sort of thing lovely and
1: um, so i think that's all the questions that um, i have for you now are there any tips or any advice you'd like to give to medical students before we finish up um, I think, look,
2: it, it's a wonderful career, medicine. And I think, obviously, we're all going to be working for a long period of time, maybe you guys more than even more than me. And I think the beauty about medicine is that you can have lots of different careers. Um, and so, obviously, choose a path you're interested in, but it doesn't have to be the only path. And I think being resilient and adaptable, obviously, are probably the greatest qualities that medical students can have and young doctors can have.
1: Um, Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. All right, guys. See you next week.